0: Welcome everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 this morning as we continue our, our study through Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 1, we'll be focusing our attention on verse 2 through 4. Now during the height of the Enlightenment in the 18th century there was a skeptic philosopher named Gotthold Lessing. And he declared that there was an ugly, broad ditch between the modern human mind and the supernatural claims of Scripture. And what he meant by this statement is that in modern society, we have developed to realize that the only truths that we can have absolute assurance of are what he called necessary truths. Things like mathematical equations. We can know that two plus two equals four. Things like logical truth statements such as there are no mammalian snakes, right? By definition, that is a true statement. Or observable, repeatable phenomenon, right? We can have assurance that water at sea level will boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit because we can do it over and over and over and over again we can know that these things are true but if a claim cannot be verified in this manner then you have no basis for knowing that it is true and you might think well what does this have to do with me I don't really care what this got guy said 300 years ago but you should care Because this skeptical approach to knowledge has become the very foundation of our modern search for truth. It has been so widely accepted and taught that most people don't even realize that they are operating under this belief about truth. That unless we have been self-consciously aware that this is the way we do it, we continue to walk in this idea that the only things that we can assure ourselves that we know are these necessary truths, as Lessing called them. And maybe we feel justified in believing in this conception of truth. I mean, it has gotten us to the moon, hasn't it? It's given us skyscrapers and automobiles and modern medicine and nuclear energy and cell phones. It's hard to argue with the results of modern enlightenment thinking and where it has brought us. However, if we assume the premise is true, then we can never have assurance of the most fundamental experiences and desires of human life. If we believe that these necessary truths are the only truths, then we have no basis to know things like love. How do you know that you love your child or your spouse? How can you prove its reality? How do you know that the Elijah concert was beautiful or that the sunset over the Grand Canyon as the thunderstorm rolls in is sublime? How do you know that it's wrong to break a vow or to steal someone's property or to kill the innocent? None of these things are verifiable by necessary truths. And so they are all covered in a shroud of doubt and uncertainty. Placed on the other side of what Lessing called this ugly broad ditch. And the most fundamental human realities become matters of merely taste Or opinion. We are left utterly alone, surrounded by art and music that is just garbage. Digital representations of reality. Divorce, theft, and abortion. And we know that these things are wrong. We know that they are not beautiful. We know that they are not true. But we have been given this conception of truth that makes it so that we have no assurance and no ground to say that they are such with no assurance that there is meaning or purpose, or that there is joy or hope or peace. If we accept this belief that we can only have assurance of necessary truths, then we can never know God. Because He is not an equation, He's not a theorem of logic, and He's not a repeatable, observable scientific fact. Rather, God is a person, a Spirit, Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He dwells in light that is unapproachable. We cannot work our way up to him. We cannot search him out. We cannot perform an experiment or devise a logical proof that assures us of his reality. And so, are we left to join the skeptics and the agnostics? Are we left to wander in a haze of doubt and uncertainty? Well, not at all. Because despite the assertion that we can only know clinical objective realities, the truth is we know much more than what our enlightenment philosophies will allow us. We know love. We know beauty and morality. Not merely as matters of opinions, but as reality. And in the same manner, we can come to know the reality of God. Not by experimentation or equation, but rather by revelation. By His own willingness to come to us and to give to us a true knowledge of Himself. In our passage for this morning, the author is seeking to demonstrate the way that we come to a full and assured knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that the various means of God's revelation throughout time have all come together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That He is the revelation of the mystery. That He is the fulfillment of every promise. That He is the lens through which all of God's revelation becomes clear. And this week the author continues to build his case that Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation of God. And what we will see is that if we would know the one true God, then we must know Him through Jesus Christ alone. So here now, the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us pray. O oh, Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life giving word. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, may shine Your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and the living of this radiant truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're all familiar with the situation in which a parent grows older and they give to their child what we call the power of attorney. And this means that they are given the right to make legal decisions on behalf of their parent, right? They have the right to control finances, file taxes, to pay bills, even into, to enter into contracts. And a medical power of attorney means that they can make decisions about health care and treatments, right? There's a passing authority from one generation to the next. And the person who has the power of attorney, attorney can act on their behalf. And in our passage, a similar dynamic is being described. Now, not one in which God has grown older and needs someone to take over, but rather one in which God's Son is given authority to act and speak on His behalf as the heir. We see this playing out in verses 2 and 4. So first in verse 2, we read, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir Of all things. Then in verse 4. If you look down there. It says. Having become much superior to angels. As the name he has inherited. Is more excellent. Than theirs. While much is being communicated. In these verses about the son. Being the heir of the father. The primary point. Is that as the heir of God. Jesus has the right to speak. On behalf of God. So in verse 2, the son's appointment of the heir of all things means that he has the right to speak the final word, right? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And in verse 4, this inheritance that he has is superior to angels in his revelation of God. You see, we miss the point if we forget what an angel did. The name angel itself means messenger. And these spiritual beings are messengers of God. The Jewish people believed that God's law, His Word, was given through the mediation of angels. God spoke by these Messengers, But the Son, as the heir of the Father, is a superior, brings to us a better revelation than the angels before Him. You see, just as a power of attorney has the right to speak binding words on behalf of another, so too does Jesus Christ have the right to speak on behalf of God. To the extent that everything that Jesus says is in fact what God says. Everything that He does is what God does. The whole world has been given to Him as the heir and therefore He has the right to reveal God to whomever He chooses. This is what Jesus meant when He said in Luke chapter 10, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. Right? I am the heir of all things. Everything has been given to Me. So what is the point? Why does he say that? Well, he continues. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Father has given Jesus all authority. He says, I am the heir of all the world. And therefore, I have the right... To reveal who the Father is to whomever I choose. It is my prerogative, says the Son. This is why we must come to know the Father through the Son. This is why Jesus Christ alone is the path to full assurance of who God is. Because the Son is the heir and as the heir, He has the right to give to us the full and final revelation of who God is. To speak the truth of who God is. Now within our culture, one of the ways that we try to speak of what is true is through credentialism. We play this game where if somebody has the right credential, then that means they have the right to speak specific truths. Just this past week, a teacher at an Arizona Senate Education Committee meeting made such an argument. You see, they were debating a bill that would ban sexually explicit material in schools along with material that promoted gender fluidity and normalized things like pedophilia. And this teacher was arguing against the bill. And she said parents shouldn't be deciding what their children learn because they haven't been trained. She said, quote, I have a master's degree. We all, referring to the teachers, have advanced degrees. What do parents have? And the same argument is made over and over again in our society. People claim that they have the exclusive right to determine what is good and true because they have a degree that says so. So don't believe your lying eyes, you ignorant fool. You don't know what is best for your own children. You don't understand gender. You don't understand biology or history or medicine. You need to educate yourself. So keep your mouth closed because you don't have the credential to say what is true. And this game that the world has been playing has been playing throughout the years. You think that there is a God. You believe that the Bible is true. You trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. What makes you qualified to make such assertions about divine or supernatural truth? Show me the equation. Demonstrate your truth. I have the degree. I have letters behind my name and therefore I declare there is no God and that the Bible is merely a collection of ancient superstitions. And if Jesus did exist, He certainly didn't rise from the dead. Harvard, Yale, and Princeton have given me a name and by that name I declare who and what God is. But Christian, we cannot give in to such falsehood about how we come to know what is true. The supposed experts are the true fools. They have declared there is no God. But to declare that there is no God is to show how foolish they actually are. For they are claiming for themselves the right that they, that only is given to the heir. You say you have a degree? You have a title, a name that gives you the right to declare what is true about God and His Word. That you are the source of this knowledge. Well, the Son has the name that is above all names. The Son has been given the name above all else. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will finally confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You want to play the authority game with truth? The Son has inherited the whole world and by His name and His name alone we come to know the truth about who God is. The first thing that we see in our text is that it's by the will and the authority of the Son of God that we come to know the truth about God. The second thing that we see is that it is by the work of the Son that we come to know God. Or to say it another way, we trust the Son as the highest revelation of God because He is God's agent in this world. Look at what the author writes about the Son as God's agent beginning at the end of verse 2 and then we'll skip into verse 3. It says, "...through whom... Also, he created the world. And after, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The text shows us four ways that Jesus acts as God's agent in this world. First, we see that it is through the Son that God created the world. The Father willed creation and the Son accomplished the Father's will to bring it about. It is the Son who brought everything into existence. This truth is declared elsewhere throughout the Bible. The Apostle John declares all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians chapter 1, we read, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through Him and for Him. You see, the Father brought this world into existence through the agency of His Son. Second, the Son sustains the world. As the text says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The very world in which we exist continues to exist because of the word of the sun. If he were to declare the end of the world, it would be the end. But rather, he keeps the world going forward. He keeps this earth rotating on its axis. He keeps it revolving around the sun. He keeps galaxies and molecules operating according to their purposes. He keeps the world from flying off into chaos. And the very ground of logic and predictability by which the deniers of God would make their vain arguments are the very things that are upheld by the word of the Son. As Paul explains, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. You see, God the Father sustains the world through His Son. The third thing we see is that the Son redeems the world. It was the will of the Father to redeem a people to Himself. And the Son is the agent through whom this redemption is brought about. Again, we read here in Hebrews that He made purification for sins. Jesus The Son of God accomplished the will of the Father to save His people by going to the cross and pouring out His blood. Jesus cleansed His people from their sin because it was the will of the Father and it was His job to act as the agent of the Father's will on earth. And so we read in John chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. It is God's will that as we look to Jesus Christ in faith and what He has accomplished, we have eternal life. It's through the Son that God created the world and sustains the world, and redeems the world. And the fourth thing we see is that it's through the Son that God brings the world to its appointed end. For the Son is sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. This phrase is repeated throughout the New Testament that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it means that Jesus has taken up the authority to bring the world to its appointed end. He is worthy to open the scrolls, as the book of Revelation puts it. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, that He must reign until He puts all enemies under His feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Son is God's agent for bringing about His will. And the Son perfectly accomplishes all that the Father has given Him. Why is it that we should look to the Son to know the Father? Because the Father is known through the work of the Son. The Father is known in and through creations because the heavens declare the glory of God. The Father is known through the sustaining of the world for it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. The Father is known through the act of redemption for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And the Father will be known when all is brought to its ultimate end and when all of God's enemies are destroyed and death is no more. And it is the Son who accomplishes all of this work. Now as you've no doubt noticed, I've been jumping back and forth between verses 2 and 4. I began with the outermost phrases to show that the Son is the heir of the Father. I proceeded to the next rung of phrases to show that the Son is the agent of the Father. And now we come to the very middle of this section of Scripture to show that the Son is the glory of the Father. This approach is not by coincidence or happenstance. For throughout Scripture... The authors tend to make arguments in this manner. They begin with their first point and proceed to their second point and hit their third point. And then they go back to their second point and then they end with where they began with their first point. You see this structure all throughout Scripture. And it is done so that this third middle point receives the most attention, is highlighted. It's the most important idea. And therefore, in our text, we see that the most important thing to know is that the Son is the glory of the Father. This is why we look to Him and have assurance that He is the highest revelation of God because He is the very nature of God Himself. That is to say, we know the Father through the will of the Son, through the work of the Son, and finally through the person of the Son. Look at verse 3. There we read. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. As the rays of the sun display the brightness of the sun, so too does Jesus shine forth the glory of God. Jesus is the exact display of the of the nature of God. And this is why we must look to Jesus as the fullest revelation of God Himself because by His very nature, He is a display of God. In fact, He is the exact imprint of God. He is the possessor of God's divine nature. He is the very glory of God Himself. Elsewhere we read that He is the image of the invisible God and that He has equality with God. Why should we look to the Son as the fullest revelation of the Father? Because the Son is God Himself. Jesus is not merely a new prophet. He is not a wise religious thinker. We know and believe the revelation of God that Jesus brings because Jesus is God. And therefore, He is the perfect and full revelation of who God is. This is what it means when Jesus says in John 14, 9, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. Or what Paul means when he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Where do we come to know the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not just a reflection of God's glory. He's not a mere messenger of God's glory. Jesus, as the Son of God, is God's glory. And if you would know God, and if you would have assurance that you know God, then you must know Him through the Son, through Jesus Christ alone. Because Jesus is God Himself. Have you ever had someone try to explain to you how something tastes? They they try to tell you, they they give you hints about what it is that it tastes like, maybe like the barbecue that Trail Life is going to be making and selling on the 11th. Shameless plug. Right? It's smoky, it's tasty, it has some sweetness to it, some saltiness to it, the fat is rendering out of it, and you're like, mmm, that just tastes so good. But until you actually put it in your mouth and experience it, which you can do, If you look online, I do have a point here. It's not just to sell barbecue for trail life. Until you actually taste it, you don't know the full reality of it. You might know true things about it, but you haven't experienced it yourself. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God has spoken to us. He's told us about Himself. He's told us true things about Himself throughout time, throughout history, throughout His prophets. And yet, now in His Son, Jesus Christ, you come to know who God is in fullness because you are not just hearing about God, but you are seeing God Himself. This is what the Word of God is saying to us this morning. The way you come to know the reality of God is through Jesus Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is why Jesus is the final Word. Because through His will, He is God's heir. Through His work, He is God's agent. And through His person, He is God's glory. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. This is what eternal life is, to know God. But what about that ugly broad dick? What about that chasm that lies between our knowledge of necessary truths and supernatural truths? The gap between our knowledge of creation and our knowledge of the Creator. How can we have eternal life? How can we know God if there is such a gap? Well, our culture tells us that there is no way to know God. Now, You can have opinions about it. Now you might have a particular religious taste, but without a logical theorem, without a mathematical equation, without a scientific repeatable experiment, all of your knowledge about God is unjustified. It's just your opinion. You think you know God, but you don't. But the Word of God teaches us that this gap has been bridged. That light has shone into the darkness. For the eternal and invisible God has become man. The Word has become flesh. Full divinity has joined to full humanity. And these two distinct natures exist in the one person, the man, Jesus Christ. The gap has been filled. You can truly know God. This is how we have a knowledge of God through the will and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. We know His will for our salvation. We know His work of dying and rising and coming again. We know His person in the face of Jesus Christ. You need not submit to any other demands to prove or to justify what you know to be true. Because God has given to us his son in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen let us pray oh father god we confess that we are dazzled by the achievements of those who would claim that we can only know for certain what we can prove according to their means. Father, we confess that so often this line of thinking brings us doubt and causes us to wonder how we might have assurance. We pray that this morning as we hear Your Word, that we would see the truth of the reality that You have revealed Yourself fully. That we might have full assurance that we know You. In your Son Jesus Christ, oh Jesus, would you open our eyes by the power of the Spirit to walk in such assurance of knowledge? We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.